Nicole Gallen, a few years ago, you co-wrote the novel uh, The Rise and Fall of Dodo with a young upstart novelist named Neil Stevenson. <laughs> you have now solo authored the sequel, Master of the Revels. And, it, and I can't, it's hard for me to count the number of boxes this ticks for me. It's sci-fi, it's time travel, it's history, it's romance, it's adventure, there's witchcraft, and there's William Shakespeare. I might be the perfect target audience for this book. Oh good, may there be many of you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 740, The Revel's Master. Nicole Gallen's new novel, Master of the Revels, is the sequel to her New York Times bestselling novel, The Rise and Fall of Dodo, which she co-wrote with Neil Stevenson and picks up right where that fast-paced adventure takes off, with the witch Grania threatening to eradicate all modern technology by going back into the past and changing history. Our heroes Melisande Stokes, Tristan Lyons, and their fellow rogue Dodo agents are joined by Tristan's untested sister, Robin, who goes back to London in 1606, encounters the Shakespeare brothers Will and Ned, runs afoul of the master of the revels himself, Edmund Tilney, and the whole thing climaxes at the very first public performance of William Shakespeare's Scottish play. I read both a nearly final draft and now the published edition of Master of the Revels, and I loved it each time, and I started my conversation with Nicole asking how the idea of the novel came to be. What came first? the success of the rise and fall of Dodo and the commission that somebody better write a sequel to this or your desire to go, wait, I've, I've set up in a time travel universe here. I could go back to Shakespeare's time. The answer is there's a third answer, which is the actual answer. I had wanted to write about Edmund Tilney, the master of the revels for years. I had actually um, pitched at one point, pitched the idea for a TV series to my LA agent and then didn't really follow through on about a sort of a series of stories. And I was even thinking like, I could write this as a series of novels in which Shakespeare's younger brother, Ned Shakespeare, works in the office of the master of the revels as a sort of a mole. And it, and I was, it was gonna get into all sorts of things about the relationship between art and commerce and art and politics. And I just, I had this whole very highfalutin thing. Nothing came of it, which was partly me being distracted. And then, so it just sat in the back of my head as a thing I wanted to get to. And then when Neil and I were talking about possible sequels or spinoffs or various other things, we were just throwing ideas around for not necessarily for a sequel, but for sort of little short stories that could be connected to it. Um, and I said, well, here's this story that, this story that could involve time travel because it's set in a period we've already talked about. And Neil said, that sounds like a great idea for a sequel. And I immediately, I thought, oh my God, I could write a whole novel set in Shakespeare's London. Yeah. And it could be connected to this, yes. <laughs> so the, minute, the minute that he said that, I was on it. Um, and, and luckily, you know, we have the same agent, we have the same editor. That's why part of why it was so easy to put the first book together. And Neil had so many other projects that he was not interested in writing a sequel, but he was delighted that a sequel was going to exist and that I would be writing it and that that would be the core story. 
it was a coming together of, of two different paths coming together in just the right way. And it's so perfect because as we've, we've mentioned on previous conversations, um, you've, you've always been a time travel no novelist because they just called you an historical novelist. <laughs> you know, you. now that you're, it's all the same research, it's all the same, you're writing as if you're there, but now there's a way for us to get there with you. <laughs> Yes, that's, and there's also a way for me to cheat and use modern voices when I feel like it, which is fun. That's one of the best things I think about writing in the Dodo universe is because it's epistolary and there are all of these different voices, it's just so much fun to, to try to think as a storyteller in a variety of different eras. And voices and, and, and styles. Yeah. I remember I, the first novel I read that I was aware of that used this style was Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's almost all letters. And I thought, this is an amazing way to tell a story because it's immediate and it's first person without, uh, you know, and natural sounding. Okay with being compared to Dracula. Thank you. <laughs> you blood-sucking author, you. Um, <laughs> there's also a great, um, there's great tension, both comic and dramatic between the voices, where you're hearing one side of the story, then you hear the other side of the story. It's, it's one of the things I love, too, about not only the novel, but maybe this is your style? I'm thinking about it now. Maybe it's unique to the novel. But anyway, there's this tension between there's, there's the form, formal language and sort of casual slang, um, a, a 17th century language and modern language, um, the professional duties, personal uh, crises, between the scientific and the domestic, I mean, you're, you're, the novel is um, epically Shakespearean in, in that sense, in that it contains all that, all that stuff. Thank you. Yes, yes. And you know, it's funny, now that, you, now that you're saying, is this true for me all the time? I suspect in some ways it sort of is. I mean, when I write, when I write historical fiction and there's a, it's a third-person omniscient narrator, the, I, I do not do what some novelists choose to do. Um, like when Maggie O'Farrell wrote Hamnet, she chose to try to write in a, to sound like a narrator of that era, even though it's not in first person. And I don't do that. I, I own the fact that I'm a modern writer writing for a contemporary audience. So I think there's a little bit of that in all of my writing anyway, but I also try not to think too hard about what it is I'm doing. So I'm not the best person to ask about what I'm doing. Yeah, that's that's hard, and these kinds of conversations are hard because you know you have to be articulate about something, not only that was creative, but it was a long time ago. I mean, <laughs> the draft I read was at least compiled fourteen months ago or something right, like that. Right. Yeah. Um, another great thing about the title is that it can refer to so many people. Yes, it's about Edmund Til Tilney, but arguably it's about your young heroine Robin, also whom I love. She Thank is. You. She is. She's. She's like that stereotype you see all the time recently of the young goth chick who's got a lot of skills, but she's antisocial and she's got a chip on her shoulder, or whatever. And Robin is the exact opposite. She's got all the skills, but she's like a puppy. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Eager to please, and she's really fun, and she brings she brings a, a, a an energy to this that could that without her could drag it down into being, oh dear, this is a serious and important uh, right. time travel novel. Right, yes, we wouldn't want that, so yeah. Well, yeah. No, she's bubbly, There's bubbly's not quite the right word. Bubbly makes her sound like she's more pink than she is. <laughs> well, and serious is not the right word either because it's intensely serious, it's just not solemn. 
Robin keeps it from being solemn. That is, I think that's totally accurate. Thank you. Yeah. Very well put. There's so many bad guys in Master of the Revels. Um, one, one is Grania, the witch. And was was her voice the most fun to write in? You know, her voice was the most fun to write for the first book. And I actually found it very challenging. There's going to be spoilers from the for the for uh, regarding the first book in okay. this one. Okay. Because in the first book, at the beginning of the first book, she is a little bit like Robin is at the beginning of this book. She is gleeful and energetic and free form and, you know, her own her own lady and likes to have fun and is a little wild and out of control. Chaotic neutral, I think, is the... <laughs> which Robin is as well, I think. Maybe Robin's chaotic good. Anyway, um, so that was very fun to create her voice for The Rise and Fall of Dodo. In this book, she is in a very different headspace. And so maintaining the the tone of the first book was really a challenge because she is angry. She is um, uh, strategic, which is not something that comes naturally to her. So there's work involved for her that is not natural to her. So it's always fun to write in her voice. And I, I really do love writing her and I love being inside of her head. But she was less wild and wacky and playing it by ear in this book out of necessity. That's why there is a story in this book because she's got a plan in this book. Whereas in the first book, she was kind of like rolling with the punches and figuring out as she went along. And one thing I remember we talked about when we were talking about Dodo is that I asked whether the relationship between your two heroes, uh, Tristan Lyons and Melisande Stokes was in part kind of your relationship to Neil Stevenson as you were writing the book. And I'm wondering if in this book, the relationship, because Tristan's barely in it for reasons, and Mel, Mel is on her own journey, her own narrative path in this book. And so the relationship between Robin, um, who could be construed as a master of the revels, a young master of the revels, and Edmund Tilney, who is the master of the revels, the relationship between them feels like it's a relationship between both aspects of you. Oh my goodness, wow, that's deep. I'll say yes to that, sure. Yes. Deep, down, deep down it's shallow, really. I, but. I do, no, no, but I, I mean, I really genuinely do relate to both of them very, very deeply and, and I hadn't really thought about it that way. Wow, I'm getting a little verklempt here, Austin. I, I, in some ways you've nailed it, to the degree, as we've talked about before as well, that all writing is autobiographical. Robin and, and Tilney are definitely both, I, I see myself in both of them, even though they are almost diametrically opposed. I'm Ben Crystal, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page, where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin, and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Nicole Galland, whose thrilling new novel, Master of the Revels, comes out on Tuesday, February 23rd. 
The nuanced take on Edmund Tilney that you give is surprisingly sympathetic to the guy who might be, should be maybe considered the bad guy of the piece. He, well, he's not the bad guy in intention. He's the bad guy in situation. He is an unfortunate roadblock to the good guys getting what they want. Which, so he's an antagonist in that sense, but he's not a villain. Right. Grania's right. the villain, unless you happen to agree with her worldview, in which case she's the protagonist. I went back and looked, and you don't mention this on the back cover of the book, so I don't think it's a spoiler, but for me, this is a, a huge selling point of the of a, a, a thing I would tell people to say, you've got to read this book, because it climaxes in the very first public performance of Shakespeare's Scottish play, Macbeth. Did you know that from the jump that that was going to happen? Uh, and and did it? do we know where it actually premiered? The very first evidence that we have of it premiering anywhere was in was at court in August, and this this production is in April. Once once I knew it was going to be Master of the Rebels, it was going to be witches, and it was going to be spells because it's because it's Grania, it's the Dodo universe. So yes, it's a no brainer. It's yeah. a no brainer, and it's so serendipitous because you're right. the entire premise of Dodo is based on the use of witchcraft as as a magical technological component. And right. now you're going back to Shakespeare's time. What are you going to write? What else are you going to write about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plus I really, really love the play. And I, um, it's not, I had a particular relationship to Othello, the play Othello, which let me write Iago. I, I just, on a psychological level, I, there was a lot of resonance for me in a lot of different ways. And I just adore Macbeth, but I adore it in a different way and not in a way that I felt that I could have ever written a novel about Macbeth. Plus Dorothy Dunnett wrote about the historical Macbeth. So like, I'm not gonna compete with her. Um, so because of that, I it was a really wonderful opportunity to get to spend time with a play that I love without committing to trying to retell it as a novel. So everything about, every, the serendipity was perfect. It's sort of like, it. It scratched every itch I had. It's interesting that in the in no matter what time period you're in in, in Master of the Revels, and it jumps around to at least four or five. Yeah. Uh, everybody is absolutely accepting of the presence and the reality of witches. Yes. And, and their that, power. That is a part of the worldview. We address that in the Rise and Fall of Dodo. Right. Yes. Uh, I mean, for me, I love that because real or metaphor, it's powerful. You know, the, the metaphor of, of witchcraft or of magic is, is equally as powerful in, as, as maybe the actual, well, maybe not equally, but for me, it's very powerful in a it's way that powerful, magic yeah. One of the things that I really loved about the decision that we made in Dodo to have it be that in the pre-modern world, the early modern world, and, and, and but all the way back to, you know, recorded time, that until very recently in human history, witchcraft was just an obvious thing that people just knew about. It wasn't, do you believe in it or not? It just was a fact. It was so convenient that it, that's how it was treated in James's time, King James's time, which is when the Shakespeare part of the book is set, that that you I could quote things directly from primary sources that were completely like on the same wavelength as, as our basic worldview in the book. 
that that worked out very nicely. And and it was very uh, very thoughtful of King James to have actually written a book about witches. That is true. Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, Jim. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Nicole Gallen's wonderful new novel, Master of the Revels, comes out on Tuesday, February 23rd, and is available for pre-order, or depending on when you're hearing this, in bookstores now. Send us your history-changing adventure via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform, on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Nicole on Twitter too at Nicole Galland. Thanks as always to COVID Survivor, seriously, and thank goodness, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Colleen Sihi. I think I pronounced that right. I hope I did. No reason. It's just random. Special thanks to Ben Crystal, whose videos about Shakespeare's original pronunciation and books, Shakespeare's words, and Shakespeare on Toast are invaluable companions. Find more information about Ben at bencrystal.com. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 740, 2220ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Your Shakespeare nerdy geekery is sort of off the charts. Did you, in your research for this, did you discover things you didn't know? Something that I hadn't known that probably is too nerdy to be of interest, even to your audience, but is significant in the in the book, is that unlike many of the other plays, famously Hamlet, it was never published before the first folio came out. So there were no little Macbeths wandering around that might have been... Um, boulderized in some way or adulterated. There was only the one that came out. The first time anybody saw it in print, other than the actors, was in 1623 when the first folio came out. And, um, that's, a, and that's key to the, your plot, too, thankfully. Yes, right. Yes. yes. So I, when I was doing the research in general, because I am a Shakespeare nerd and not just a Macbeth nerd, I had... I had so much in the first draft of the book. At a certain point, I started to realize like this, I have to write this for people who are not Shakespeare nerds. So I started cutting sections, but keeping them, like making a document where I, whether it was an entire passage or just one little factoid that I really, really loved, like the amount of money that a playwright could make. I don't know if I ended up keeping that one or not, but at a certain point, Ned is explaining to Robin like what his professional plans are, and he's talking about the difference between how much you make as an actor versus how much you make as a playwright. And I, and I can't remember how much of that I actually kept at this point, but things like that, if I realized I really need to not indulge in the geekiness too much. So I have a document, and there's a part of me that is wishes that I, like, I should put it up on my website or something. Like, if you're really into being a Shakespeare nerd, go to this, here's the URL for all the things that didn't make it into the final draft. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.